The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 144. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Enterprise episode called Dear Doctor. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. You know, they said that this is like the best episode of the first season, but I haven't reviewed the entire first season with that in mind, but... Ah. (laughs) Hi, Dom. Hi. And Father Corey Stika. How are you doing, Father Corey? Uh, I kind of agree with Jimmy. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, uh, and retweet the show on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. We love to see you on our social media. Yes, The Dear Doctor. This is a first season episode. It's the 13th episode of the first season, and it is basically, it's a Dr. Flox story. It focuses mm-hmm. on Flox, and it's the first time, like the first really development of the flocks character really kind of digging into who he is and that sort of thing and that's fine you know we need to get to know our characters and they need episodes devoted to them and that's fine it's also though trying to be a prequel prime directive episode so mm-hmm. we're out here we don't have the prime directive yet but we've still got to wrestle with those issues and so this is going to kind of set us up conceptually for the future existence right. of the prime directive And it just manages to spectacularly fail to combine those elements in a satisfying way. (laughs) Well, well, and you also get the uh, the Captain Archer suddenly having to realize what the Vulcans were trying to do on Earth. And now he's in that position where he's trying to, you know, how do we handle this technology that we know that these other races don't? And how do we help him to do it in a way that's safe? You know, and that, that kind of gets thrown in there as well. And and of course the 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 most awkwardly phrased line at the end where Archer says someday we'll have some sort of directive, <laughs> like yeah. it's so mm. so like it just it just felt like it kind of clunked across the screen. I don't know. It, it is it is kind of clunky. I don't know that I yeah. had the same reaction, but it is clunky dialogue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Can we say though that at least it had the best character in it, Porthos? So I mean, of all <laughs> yeah. the, the entire series, the best character was in there. At least for a I always bit. love Porthos. He's the cutest dog ever. <laughs> so uh, we do we do open with Phlox feeding his menagerie. So it's the beginning of the day, and he's feeding his menagerie. And, and I like I point, like I yeah. like how he has this bio based medicine. You know that's mm-hmm. nice. Yes. I like that. That makes sense for okay. It's going to be alien. It's not going to be exactly like Earth medicine, but and that's cool. Uh, and to emphasize the alienness of the Phlox is at one point we he, he eats the live slug that he's been feeding to the. To the to the one of the creatures, so we get that really that emphasis on Flux as yes, he's not he's he's Denobulan, not human, 
And he's apparently got this correspondence with a Dr. Lucas, who's a uh, human, who's in the Interspecies Medical Exchange, and he's on Denobulus. Uh, and uh, I like the fact that his his email comes in, and so Hoshi hand delivers it from the bridge. Oh yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> they, on on a on a plastic see through square with microchips yeah. embedded in it. Oh, and floppy disk. <laughs> it's about the size of a floppy disk. Yeah, and you're going. Yeah. I'm going. Really, you can't just send that to him over the network. No. <laughs> but even even more, because it's just a voice message. It's not like mm-hmm. some complex 3D holographic thing that goes on for hours. It's just a voice right. message. But Hoshi, when she finds out the nature of the correspondence that he's talking to Dr. Lucas about, you know, it's just personal observations and things like that. She's like, oh, I had a pen pal when I was young, and it, they were in, my pen pal was in Brisbane, Australia, and it was such a window on this exotic world, and I'm going... Yeah, you can really tell what generation the writers of this grew up in. Yeah. Hoshi's pen pal is so 1970s. I mean, <laughs> yes. today, having, I remember when the internet first became commercially available in the 90s, and I'm getting emails, and it someone is saying, you know, greetings from a tiny little stone cabin in Ireland. And yeah, okay, that was an exotic thing in the 1990s for both of us. Yes. But now it's like, Okay, what's your time zone, and let's arrange a Skype. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> right, not a big deal. We well, talk to people around the world all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I laugh about the little cartridge, the little floppy disk, or whatever, because of course that's a conceit that they did. Because of course the 1960s Star Trek had TOS had the little data cassettes they had to use, and right. so they 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 wanted this conceit of yes, even before the Enterprise, they did that. Of course, the Discovery goes, yeah, forget all that. <laughs> yeah, Discovery said prequels. We'll show you what a prequel is. Uh, so we we do get this uh, voiceover of Flox dictating his letter in return, and we get some interesting insight into the Denobulan culture and species, including uh, he mentions uh, the rigors of mating season on Denobulus uh, and something about separating the two combatants. Yeah, <laughs> which, <laughs> which which leads to some interesting ima- imagination about what uh, the reproduction is like among the Denobulans. Well, a lot of species do have, you know, during during the rut, you will have combatants to yep. be able to breed with the females. Right, right. Oh, yes. Uh, and then uh, he t- he does, and it, I, I did like this where he talks about the loneliness of being the you know an alien among the crew and also on top of that being the doctor which also somewhat separates you from the crew you're their doctor so there's mm-hmm. a necessary separation so i i thought that was interesting uh, and we get a scene of him sitting alone in the mess hall also at movie night and they're watching for whom the bell tolls he's mm-hmm. observing the emo- he's not really interested in the movies but he's interested in observing the crew's reaction to the movies yes. right and he's there with a lady named Crewman Cutler, who we've mm-hmm. seen once before, and she'll show up once again. And she's like throwing herself at him, and yep. it's taken him a while to catch on. Yes, and uh, and okay, so this outsider perspective on humans is fine as far mm-hmm. as you know writing goes in terms of a concept. It makes sense. I'm on board for that. But this is a really lazily written episode because mm-hmm. the main plot cannot be bothered to show up for 10 minutes, which is right. basically a quarter of the runtime. I mean, classic Doctor Who does better than that. This, this, <laughs> this whole thing is perceived. I mean, nothing but character stuff for the first mm-hmm. 10 minutes. 
And then when we get to the actual first appearance of the main plot, they find this spaceship in space. It's it's got faint life signs on board. They they bring over the the crew of this ship, which is like two guys, although we only see mm-hmm. see one of them. Mm-hmm. And his planet has a plague going on, and it's like totally can sympathize with that. Yeah. <laughs> so they they ask for help, and so I was thinking about how Next Gen would have handled this. Now, number one, Next Gen, the most successful of the revived Star Trek series, is, mm-hmm. would have had this be with, if not the very first scene, the first thing that happens after the credits. Right, yeah. And then we would have tense shots of the Enterprise racing through space to get to this other planet at a high rate of speed to help mm-hmm. with the plague. And there would have been urgent music conveying the sense of urgency, and it would have felt much more energetic. Here, after the revelation of these people have a plague going on, we have the doctor doing another entry in his letter saying, I've been asked to take responsibility for 50 million people. And then we're immediately, after that dramatic statement, we are we immediately go to the mess hall where he's given Hoshi a grammar lesson and they're eating food and having romantic gossip about Crewman Cutler. And they have right. this dark lighting, which, you know, pulls down the energy of the scene and this slow, gentle music betraying the sense of urgency that they're trying to establish. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is. You, I, you're right. I like that the idea, the contrast between the way TNG would handle this versus how Enterprise yeah. handles it. It's like, yeah, all of that, that the, the Doctor's Day stuff would be in the teaser, the pre-credit teaser. Mm-hmm. They would have crammed it into a minute and a half or two minutes at most, and then we'd get into the meat of, this, of the story. But yeah, instead... We have this meandering, and and you can't. I can't tell whether they really want to explore the, the, the this crisis, or they're just this is just a, a exploration of the Doctor's character, who we haven't managed to get around to really doing much with this right. season. And I, I, and I definitely think it was it, you know the crisis was just the, the excuse the, the excuse to to show the yeah. Doctor in this kind of situation, and you know yeah you don't have the scene of like Doctor Crusher rushing around getting everything ready and all the the bio beds right. ready and everything. You don't have anything like that. And so the the even the scenes where they're on the planet is more about showing the doctor doing the work, or right. you know his personality and everything as he's doing the work than it is the actual crisis they're dealing with. It's like, oh, by the way, we got this medication. Here's how you resolve it. And now we're going to have the <laughs> relationship again. Well, at the at the end, they try to cram all that in the the the, the moral and ethical problems, uh, and it all gets kind of crammed into the end of Act Four. But but I, I should probably be explicit about what's going on. So it's a pre-warp civilization. They 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 have they translate their language in about forty-five words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Also, it is pre-warp, but they've had prior contact with warp civilizations, right. which is so when Archer and originally, you may recall, the original version of the Prime Directive in the original series was like, don't contaminate pre-warp civilizations mm-hmm. yeah it wasn't don't interfere with the future evolution of people it was just okay let's let's put the pre-warps on a kind of restricted basis so we don't mm-hmm. expose them to too much and so when archer checks with Paul, she says well they've already had contact with pre-warp so i don't see us getting involved being a problem right, right. including name drop of the ferengi which yeah. um 
who are unknown at the time. Uh, yeah, so the plague um, has no cure. They're hoping to find an advanced civilization to help them. They've already met two, like you said, two uh, uh, warp-capable civilizations. And so Phlox says, I'll try to help. When they go down to the planet, they discover that there are two different species of humanoids coexisting on the planet. One is an underclass called the Mink, and they're told that the Mink are immune to the disease. Yeah, the other, the upper class are the Valakas, and I don't see why one is superior to the other. Um, we're right. just told that we're not effectively illustrated. We're not effectively shown that and even Phlox is like oh yeah they appear to be primitive and stuff and i'm going no they don't yeah. they just appear to be an underclass <laughs> yes they're they're kept in these primitive conditions yeah. and like, also yeah. i like the idea of okay here's a planet where two subspecies survived and got along together you know didn't one of them didn't wipe the other out mm -hmm. you know we had other human subspecies here on earth but homo sapiens sapiens is where it's at now I like seeing a planet where that's different, but if you do have an integrated society, they're not going to be speaking a different language, because that's the first sign that the Mink are different, is Hoshi's translator doesn't work for their language. Right. And no, you're going to be able, I mean, if you have an integrated society, even if they have a different native language that they speak at home, they're going to have a common language with the people they're working for. You know, right. and so that was a little unrealistic, but okay, whatever. We've got this other species. What's interesting, and I like how they show this to us from Flox's perspective, is that this seems to be a functional relationship between the Valakis and the Mink. All the humans are weirded out because of the history of racism and slavery on Earth. And, which they don't really get into deep, but Phlox notes that the humans are deeply suspicious mm -hmm. of this relationship and want to become advocates for the mink. But the mink don't seem to need or want an advocate. They seem fine with the way things are. They also seem to be much more intelligent and quick to pick things up. Like one of the minks starts using human English words, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, as he's learning them. And he's doing surprising things like, organizing Dr. Flox's blood samples for him by family line and marriage arrangements and things like that to help speed the research. So I'm going, how are these guys primitive? This is pretty advanced stuff they're doing. Yeah. And they, they, they right. kind of hand wave at that saying that they're going through this evolutionary leap at this moment, you know, and, and things like that are going on. Yeah. It looks like I, they I, evolutionary I, leapt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They've already passed that point. You know, and it, I, I did kind of, key on where they said how the, the mink were put in places that the food doesn't grow, you know, that they're, it's kind of undesirable places. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's not a reference to native American reservations or anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. In a, in a way, <laughs> or any p people who are uh, oppressed by po more powerful people. Right. Uh, and Phlox uh, in his research on this disease that is, you know, uh, killing uh, many mink, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Valakians uh, is, learns that it's not a virus, but a genetic mutation. And I'm thinking, how advanced is the the medicine on Velakis that they didn't figure this out? They've got deep space probes that can go out. I mean, that's why the ship was out there. It was yeah. hoping to make contact with a warp-capable civilization. Yeah. Well, they've also got the ability to produce the medication that, that Phlox gives them. 
You right. know, so I mean, it's yeah. not like there's, oh, by the way, we're going to give you the tools to produce it. Like, no, here's how you produce it. Like, you already have right. the ability to produce it. So, yeah. And I, I, from a 2021 perspective, it's like, do you know how long it takes to make that many doses? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do now. We're that. <laughs> Could you maybe help them with a replicator or something? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, so, yeah, they, so they, it turns out that it's not, so like I said, it's not a virus and it's a genetic, genetic mutation in the Valakians who are, that's been going on for thousands of years, but accelerating and they'll be extinct in two centuries. And so what we've set up is this, is this situation where the mink, the underclass, are about to become the dominant species on the planet peacefully. They're not going to, you know, where in most cases where there are two humanoid species, one wipes the other out. In this case, they'll, they'll peacefully become the dominant species as the other species dies out. And uh, meanwhile, Phlox is trying to get the humans to see that, you know, we, we, why should we be upset about the, the Valakian make arrangement? Everyone seems happy. This is just a cultural difference. And, you know, and then does it by explaining to Cutler about the Denobulan polyamory marriage. And at that point, he's starting to lose her. Because she's on the side of the mink, or what she thinks the mink need to have done on their behalf, and Flox's mm-hmm. cultural relativism is is a bit of a turnoff to her. And mm-hmm. she she by the end of the episode she slow or actually by the end of that scene she slow friend zones him, <laughs> yes. where it's like okay let's just be friends for now, and right. and so it was interesting. From a human perspective, seeing him lose her interest, because earlier she was just throwing herself at him, and now he's really losing her over this, got to be a you know, supreme cultural relativist on these things. Right. Yeah, and, and so the, the, the crux of the, the problem that they're dealing with here, it, it comes to the fore at this point, where first it's a, the Valakian astronaut asking Archer to give them uh, warp drive technology, which so they can keep searching for a cure because they don't have a cure for this disease. The the idea being, if they had warp drive, they could go much further, faster, and find other civilizations that might be able to help them. Right. And Archer says the people you might find might not be willing to help you, which is true. <laughs> they come across Klingons. <laughs> yep. But uh, he talks to Paul and realizes they're just not ready. You know, even yeah. if, and to Paul points out, even if you gave them our schematics for warp drive, they wouldn't be able to build this. And they don't have the experience working with antimatter. And mm-hmm. they could, you know, like one antimatter accident can totally ruin your whole planet. Exactly. And, <laughs> and so they're just not ready for warp drive. And that's where, where Archer starts to realize what the perspective of the Vulcans were when they first met humans. Unfortunately, Archer doesn't take the easy way out with the warp drive question and just say, I'm sorry, that's a state secret. Mm, (laughs) You know? Yeah. It's like how to build a hydrogen bomb. We don't share that with everybody. It's too dangerous. And so, you know, he could have said that. But in my notes, this episode is so sad. (laughs) It's just everything is sad. sad about this episode after we get into the main plot. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking it was it's a lot like if you if you went back to 1915, you traveled in time and gave them the plans to a nuclear reactor. Like would they be able to build a nuclear reactor? No, eventually? they didn't even know, they didn't even know about <laughs> neutrons in 1915. Right, yeah. right. I mean, eventually over years they like we did <laughs> figure it out, 
they might do it a little faster. They'd probably hurt themselves a lot <laughs> in the yeah. process trying to do it. But yeah, so they don't even have the infrastructure to build the parts to build the the reactor. You know, it's just not even there yet, though. And I, I like the the point where Arch is like, "Well, we could stay for a little while and help." And Paul goes, "Yeah, we we did that seventy years ago, and we're still, we're still there, <laughs> or ninety years ago, yes. or whatever it was." You know? Yeah. Oh, now I now I'm starting to feel understand the Vulcans. Uh, so Flocks then goes to Archer and says, "I don't think a cure is ethical. I don't think." Curing the Valakians is an, is ethical. Uh, it's an evolutionary process that's replacing the Valakians with the Mank as the dominant species on the planet. And apparently, <laughs> evolution is, trumps all. Yeah, so this scene is another one that takes place in the mess hall, and it's dimly lit, and it has slow-moving music. Mm-hmm. And actually, he comes in, Phlox comes in on Archer, who's like having a drink or something. And Phlox gets a piece of pie, and so this is a random conversation that comes up but that's the essence of the conversation he's he's saying i want to let nature take its course on this planet and archer's first response is to hell with nature mm-hmm. and right. that's my first response too and it's my last response um <laughs> right. evolution if 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 uh, now you if you believe in divine providence evolution can have goals but Mankind and intelligence is part of God's providence. Right. If you don't believe in God and evolution is a blind process, then it doesn't have goals. And Mm -hmm. therefore, whatever scenario you can foresee playing out evolutionarily is meaningless. Right. So you're either an active agent in, in the process, if you believe in a God overseeing all of this, or if you don't believe in a god, then it is uh, you have zero reason to honor where you see an evolutionary trend going. And and Archer points that out to Flox. Yes. He says, "You're a doctor. Every time you save a patient, you're interfering in evolution," which is true. Right. So uh, now Flox then comes back with a very interesting line, which is, "I'm also a scientist, and I'm obligated to consider the larger issues." Wow, is that different than the attitude uh, that scientists were portrayed as having in the aftermath of World War II? It's like, hey, we just invent the bombs. We don't decide the ethical issues, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. you know? Right. And that was the narrative about science, the amoral scientist, through the next couple, three decades of, uh, of pop culture. So it's very interesting to have Flocks having owned the ethical aspect of being a scientist. But unfortunately, he's just flat wrong. It, mm-hmm. there, there, if, if, unless you think there's a God, in which case you're an active participant in the moral calculus here, you have no reason not to save these people who you could save. And Phlox admits to Archer that he's already got the cure, and he right. doesn't want to give it to him, and I'm, and I'm going, you unmentionable set of words. You can save these people. Go ahead and do your job and save them and let evolution play out. They've already got a functional relationship with the mink. That's the big thing is they are living in peace together. There's no like, sure, the mink, they seem happy. Are Mm -hmm. are they at the same level? Are they being maybe they're not being treated as well, but that can evolve. That relationship can evolve, especially as you say, the mink are making an evolutionary leap themselves. Yeah. And they they're. 
they've been making progress already. They've been developing, in, 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 and frankly, in evolutionary terms, they're likely developing because they are in contact with a technological situation that is putting selection pressure on the genes that control their intelligence. If you take right. away that selection pressure, then their intelligence could easily decay. And give the Valakians a chance to be better than they are, than you, than you say they are. Give them the chance to recognize the make and let them grow. And let the Valakians grow morally and ethically uh, through this. Like, if, if you leave them be, and they, they do go extinct in several centuries, who's to say that by in, in 150 years, they're not a much better people deserving right. of, of surviving in your calculus? I mean, that's what Flox is making a calculus here that the, somehow the Vlachians are not deserving yeah. of species survival. Yeah, and this exposes a big flaw in the writing process for this because the solution they craft, which is make the hard choice, which we are told is the right choice, even though they've given mm. us no reason to think that, and let evolution take its course on this planet, resulting in the death of the Vlachians. They're making that decision in the absence of a prime directive, and not even the initial prime directive, where it's just don't contaminate pre-warp civilizations. This is the refined, next-generation, stupid prime directive of mm -hmm. don't interfere with the evolution of a culture. And, and, and it's like, why would these characters be thinking in those terms? That piece of Federation ideology is not in place yet, mm -hmm. and they've told us it's not in place yet. Right. So they should not be honoring, in the end of the episode, some rarefied, stupid founding philosophical principle that won't even exist for 150 years. Right. And the, the, you know, this principle of non-interference, they're interfering just as much by withholding a cure yeah. as, as, the, as giving them would be. It, it just doesn't make sense. You know, if an alien life, you know, species had shown up a uh, 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 hundred thousand years ago and given Neanderthals a leg up, then yes, they would have dominated. But they didn't. I mean, they they make this that that's the argument that Flocks uh, makes. You know, if Neanderthals, Neanderthals had been given that leg up, they would have dominated and humans would have been suffered. Yes, right. but they didn't. And it wasn't an alien species. And that also, did that. Neanderthals and humans were very were equal technology level. It's not like Neanderthals were driving, you know, flying cars and humans were crawling through the trees. Right, you know, these were right. equal technology levels and just one species ended up succeeding, the other diminished and disappeared. You know, this is, it, we've got an advanced species that they have the ability that they could live with the second species in peace and harmony. They could become both equal partners on this planet very easily within, say, a hundred years. And there's nothing to say other than the slippery slope of evolu evolution. And it really is, a, well, we've started down this slippery slope, so we can't stop it. You know, and it's very much right. th that argument. And it, yeah, it really is, we, let's take God out of the picture. Let's put science there instead. And let's put right. evolution there instead. And that these processes are a God of their own that we can't interfere with. Right. There's an assumption also that, you know, given the, the, the way things are going, that they will inevitably end up in war and that, it, that the compassionate thing to do is to circumvent the, the war between equal species by letting the Vlachians die off. But they've existed peacefully so far. Apparently so, for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. So who's to say? Also, 
and, and so okay, now I want to write a story where we re, <laughs> where we reencounter the mink after a couple of hundred years, and the Velakians mm-hmm. have all died, and the after first contact with the mink, the mink discover that Doctor Flox had the cure and didn't give it. What do the mink think at that point? Mm-hmm, How compassionate right. is this federation that's claiming to be all oopy goopy compassion sloshing all over everywhere? You let these people die, and we had to watch them die. Yep. And, wow. And what did that do to the society that the mink were in, who were, which were supporting you know, the, the advanced society was supporting them in a way that they didn't have to worry about food. They didn't have to worry about their needs. They're being taken care of. And now that society disappears. Did they take that society over, or did all of society collapse, and are they actually worse off now than they would have been if, you know, right. and, and who's to say as as these as the advanced species starts dying off, who's to say that's not going to cause war in its own? Yeah, yeah, because they're a stabilizing factor in the society. And exactly. Flox himself says these people are going to be dead in two hundred years, but it may take millennia, thousands of years, for the mink to complete their their leap up to the level of where the Velakis are. Right. It's a it's a it feels like a a kind of eugenics judgment on mm-hmm. uh, on the Valachians with def- you know a species that has deficient genetics and it just it's uncomfortable frankly it, in a whole bunch of ways now it's interesting to note the studio interfered with the ending of this episode they did mm-hmm. uh, apparently originally Phlox was going to disobey Archer in some way which would make an interesting character choice for him and mm-hmm. the studio didn't and and I gather that he was going to withhold the fact that he had the cure from Archer, right. but the studio interfered and stupidly, or I sh- they interfered in a stupid way because yes. they didn't want to see the supporting characters being at conflict with the captain mm. at the end of the episode. Unfortunately, they didn't then do the thing they should and have Archer order Flocks to right. give the cure despite his ethical misgivings. Instead, they had to drag Archer's viewpoint over to Flocks's, or that's what the writers did, was drag Archer's view over to Flocks's. So he ends up not giving them the cure at the end of the right. episode. And and this this, we are told in one of Flox's letter voiceovers, that this is the right decision, but I don't buy that at all. Mm-mm, and right. so I, th- I think, guys, you've lost the audience. This is The audience has never been as sold on extreme applications of the Prime Directive as the show creators have been. And every yeah. time you go there, like in Star Trek Insurrection, and you want to do a hard-choice Prime Directive thing, and you're giving it an unreasonable interpretation... You lose the audience. I agree. I agree. There's there's a line when in that mess hall scene in the conversation between Flocks and the captain, and and they 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 have this exchange, and it's supposed to go in in the direction that the writers wanted to go. I think it undercuts their entire argument for non interference. Like because so Flocks says evolution is more than a theory; it's a fundamental scientific principle. Forgive me for saying so, but I believe your compassion for these people is affecting your judgment. And Archer says, my pet compassion guides my judgment. And that right. should have been the last word. Hmm. That's, That's exactly all, what it should be. Also, yes. also, I want to come back on evolution as a fundamental scientific principle. Well, so is gravity, and that doesn't mean we can't build airplanes. 
<laughs> right. right, right. Well, evolution is just describes the process by which things change. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there's one path of evolution oh, yeah, that, not, that is not, permissible. It's not a diehard fast rule. We can do things to, quote unquote, cheat evolution. Well, we do every, gonna... every time we save a person's life. Yeah. Right. I find it interesting to, to contrast this with an episode that we recently did from TNG, the episode episode called Evolution, and where uh, Doctor Stubbs, the scientist in that episode, throws that in our in in Crusher's face, says, "Doctor, every time you kill a virus in somebody, you're affecting evolution. You're you're going in the face of it." And so, you know, Star Trek has already, although in that case they again rejected that argument for for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, this episode, I, I, I fundamentally disagreed with the, the viewpoint and it shows a particular viewpoint. And Jimmy, when you mentioned before, like after World War II, you, pop culture was very suspicious of scientists. I think this episode is part of the trend that shifted sometime in the nineties, I think, right. to scientists can do no wrong. You know, that idea that science trumps all that, that there is a quote unquote science that mm-hmm. is the law. Um, and I, you know, I, I think one, one thing it does bring up that is good is the idea of science. Scientists need to be thinking about the ethics of what they're doing. Yeah, and that that in itself is not a bad thing. I just feel, and, and you know, I, I think all three of us agree that the ethics that Blocks uses here are flawed. Yeah, yeah, and the show's overall treatment of the Prime Directive is flawed, and probably the best one of the best moments in in the franchise regarding that is in the Q&A short track where Spock and number one are locked in an elevator and he's asking <laughs> questions and says, has it ever occurred to you that the Prime Directive may be ethically indefensible? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I, wonder, I wonder if that just comes out of like all the fans and, and probably the writers of that themselves yep. agreeing with that. All right. So any other thoughts on this episode? Anything we've, uh, any notes you have that we didn't cover? Father? There- there, the only only one scene I got a kick out of is where Flox is doing dental work on Paul and asks her a question <laughs> as her mouth's open, you know, because none of us have ever had that happen when we've gone to the dentist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They get really good at decoding what you're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, Jimmy? So the best parts of this episode are the character moments, but mm-hmm. it is there's too much of that. This is a lazily paced episode that is slow all the way through and doesn't even have the main plot glimmering into existence until the 10-minute mark, which is a quarter of the runtime. It is, even after the main plot is introduced, it is slowly paced. Ideas are given short shrift. The direction undercuts the sense of urgency by having everything dimly lit with slow-paced, soft music. And lack of dialogue and lack of visual dynamism, it's just a lazy, sad episode with some mm. occasional moments of, oh, that was a nice character moment. Yeah. Um, I agree. One, one thing mm-hmm. I did forget to mention, um, Crewman Cutler was actually intended to be in a, a second-tier recurring character. Unfortunately, the actress, uh, Kelly Waymeyer, died of a heart condition yeah. after the first season was filmed. Yeah. And so they were they just decided not to recast the character, but just cut the character out altogether. Yeah, yeah. Very sad. Very sad to hear to see that. Rest in peace. All right. I think that should do it for today. Uh let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Andrew M, Lee V, Alaska Tom, great name, Tom uh Pat F and Steve S. 
Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to create and continue the Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. Now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter. When you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor, which will support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. And uh, we're close to reaching, we're more than halfway to our $2,000 goal for new monthly pledges. So uh, now's the time to become a StarQuest patron. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear from you on what you think of this Enterprise episode called Dear Doctor. You can let us know by commenting at sqpn.com slash trek or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the first season Discovery episode, The Wolf Inside. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Tom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Tom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, tick tick. You know, tick tick is a word that has been speculated by some to be in Proto World, the first human language. Based uh-huh. on analysis of different currently existing language families, tick may have meant finger. And so when I was oh. thinking about tick tick, I was like, oh, finger, finger. <laughs>